Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Someone asked me if we're doing, if I planned it to do Mark 8-1 on 8-1, August 1st. Yes, I've been working towards that for months. No. But it's kind of interesting. <laughs> I don't think we'll be at 9, I, mean, I think we'll not be at 9-1 on 9-1, so don't get your hopes up. <laughs> well, we're continuing to study the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And um, we're in the middle chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And this is a pivotal chapter. And one of the things that we see is that, that the disciples are definitely on a journey. Um, they, they don't learn everything the first time. And Jesus is repeating a lesson here that he wants to make sure the disciples get. You know, the Christian life really is a journey. And uh, it's the main metaphor that is in one of the, probably the most famous book ever written uh, about Christianity, uh, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And the hero is appropriately named Christian who is on a journey uh, to the celestial city. You know, one of the songs we love singing sometimes is Amazing Grace. And that's kind of the same idea behind it when it says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home to that celestial city. So for us as Christians, uh, this life here on earth is a, a, a journey of faith, uh, the one who saved us, uh, it, it's like a walk, and we're on this walk with him. It's, it's non-negotiable that we walk uh, with the Lord. Even though we're, we're being snatched from spiritual death, we soon discover uh, that, and this is on your outline if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, that the Christian life isn't an arrival, it's an adventure. While we're on earth, it is an adventure. Before we arrive in heaven. Jesus rescues us. Uh, he points us to the path to follow him through his word. That's why we're here this morning because uh, faith grows by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we can do it only by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. It's the only way for us to, to live the Christian life. The Christian life isn't hard to live. It's impossible. We can't do it on our own. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul describes this active view of the Christian life in Ephesians 4 when he says, Walking, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So that's what we're all doing, walking with the Lord. So at the top of your outline, it says this, that this section continues the emphasis on action. Uh, remember the, the kind of the key word in Mark is immediately. And this story about the feeding of the 4,000 and the earlier feeding of the 5,000 are similar all four Gospels give an account of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, however, only Mark and Matthew record the feeding of the 4,000 as a separate miracle. Unlike the unbelieving Pharisees who were moving in the wrong direction, Mark wants his disciples and us to see how Jesus longed for them to grow in spiritual understanding and nurture and maintain it. 
So the first thing we are going to look at in this passage is the second feeding. So let's read it. Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat and his disciple, uh, with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmunathia. First of all, um, it's important for us to see that the two miracles are, 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 are of the feeding are different. Um, look at verses 19 and 20. We're going to read that eventually, but just hop down there. Jesus mentions the two accounts as separate accounts himself. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. So Jesus' testimony here is really all we need to know that these are two separate events. But there there are enough differences between them that I think it's important to, to really emphasize that these are two different accounts. And so you've got it on your outline, the two columns that show some of the differences. The Jews had been the recipients of the first miraculous meal, and the Gentiles were fed the second time, the time we're looking at today. Um, And Paul underlines that principle, doesn't he, in, in Galatians, when he says in Christ's family there can be no division into Jew and non Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. There are all, we are all in common in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. In Mark 7, Jesus talks about being clean or unclean. And and this, again, validates the fact that he serves Jews and Gentiles alike, validates the fact that uh, God is the one who decides who's clean and unclean. And you can look at some of the other differences there uh, in in the two columns. Uh, took place in two different location and two different locations. <clears throat> you know, Mark six thirty four. In thinking of the other passage, is one of the key verses of of Mark uh, chapter six, and I think of of Mark um, <clears throat> because it shows who Jesus is so clearly. It says, "When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things." Uh, And now we hear that same thing from the very lips of Jesus himself. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, I have compassion for these people. It wasn't just Mark explaining it. It was Jesus saying it. And the word compassion is like a a deep emotional reaction. It's not just, uh, you know, just a a feeling. It's it's a deep feeling. So maybe we could say Jesus felt a a, a gut-wrenching empathy for these faithful listeners that he had here. 
And then verse two continues, they've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. You know, these people were so intent on what Jesus was teaching them that they hadn't eaten for three days. How would you feel if we just said, you know what, we're gonna keep you in here for three days and ranch catering is not coming. They didn't have ranch catering. They were, they were sitting there listening to Jesus for three days. I feel good if I can keep your attention for 30 or 40 minutes. Three days? I don't know one except Jesus who could do something like that. I think that's pretty incredible. Jesus had also gone without food that length of time, but, but it was for the flock that he was concerned. And he felt compassion. And then look at verse 3. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way. Because some of them have come a long distance. So some of them had traveled a long way and Jesus knew that the implications of a long journey home, they would faint for lack of food, lack of protein, lack of energy. So these folks were obviously hungering hard after God. And I think what a great question we can stop and ask ourselves. Are, are you hungering hard after God? Do you long for him? Is it a passion that you want to know him more? You know, they were living out what Jesus said in the Beatitudes when he says in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Is that the food that you rely on? Because that's the food we need. Charles Malik, who used to be the uh, UN representative from Lebanon spoke one time at Wheaton College and he said, he said this which really struck me he said you can live without food you can live without water but you cannot live without Jesus that's the truth so what do we learn from this and this is on your outline Jesus wants us to give priority to kingdom matters He's our creator. He's completely aware of what we need. He gave us a priority. He laid it out in Matthew 6. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and God will give you everything you need. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Because if you do, you will live your life differently than if you don't believe that. We focus on the kingdom and we know that our physical needs do matter to God. That's why he healed people. That's why we pray for healing of people. And then look at verse four. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? So this location was more remote than the first miracle in chapter six of Mark. If you remember, there they could have gone to nearby towns to get something to eat. That's what the disciples say. But not here. This was too desolate. And the question in verse 4, I'm thinking about this, had to annoy Jesus a little bit. Because look at it again. Had the last feeding not really impacted them? You'd think that this event had been burned into their hearts, into their memories. I don't want to be over, overly critical of the 12. 
because I, I know that God has had to teach me lessons more than once. And I have to say that I, I should have learned lessons that God has had to take me through something a, a second time uh, to teach me about, I, because I've forgotten about his faithfulness. I, I've forgotten that, that he knows about my needs. That I, 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 I've forgotten that he cares for me. And sometimes I fail to get it and I need a review. I need another lesson taught to me. Every time I prepare a sermon, I, I, I'm, I'm like, okay, Lord, this is for me first. So what do you want to teach me? What do you want to remind me about? I, I want to I be sensitive to listen to God and, and to respond to what he tells me to do. And, and so um, the disciples, uh, we, need to be pa- we need to understand that Jesus was so patient with them, but he's also very patient with us. And we can be thankful for that. On the other hand, this was a pretty dense response. (laughs) But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Anyone? Anyone? Does that include God the Son? Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, who's standing right with you? You know, I, I know that they believed what they, what they said at the last feeding in John, where John 6 says, you are the bread of life. They know Jesus is the bread of life. <clears throat> they know he did this miracle not that long before this. And so we know he's able to feed the multitude today. That's what they should have said. We know you can do this. Where are the baskets that we need to pick up this, what's going to be left over? And it's interesting, the word baskets before when they picked up baskets were small baskets. These are another Greek word meaning big baskets full. And so like in the previous feeding miracle, Jesus asks the disciple, look at verse five, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. Again, it was inadequate. It was not enough to feed 4,000 people. But Jesus didn't lecture him. He didn't scold them. He didn't kick them out of his apostleship training program. Jesus finds out what they have. He gives thanks, and he gives some very familiar instructions. At the end of verse 7, Jesus said, he told the disciples to distribute them. That's what he'd done before. He took a little, and he made it into much. And you know, that's what God does in our lives. And so this is on your outline. In Jesus' hands, there's no such thing as too little. Think of the widow's might. Think of all the little things we offer him. And that's what he wants us to do. You give God what you have. You watch him turn it into a miracle. Use it for his glory and his kingdom. You know, we saw this last week with Joel Kramer. And if you didn't hear that message, I do hope you'll go back and hear it. It was a great message. In our home fellowship, we, we asked the question as we were talking about what Joel had said, uh, how did God outbuild David? Well, God outbuilt David. When you look at 2 Samuel 7 uh, that Joel preached on last week, David wanted to build this temple for God. And, and what, did Jesus, what did God say to him? God said, I'm going to give you a, a house that lasts forever. That's how he outbuilt David. David said, you know, I, I, I shed too much blood on this earth to build a temple for God. That's what David said later. But, and Solomon built it. 
But we know that, and we saw, Joel took us there last week in Luke 1. The Lord God will give Jesus the, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And remember what Joel said? That's impossible. It's only God can do that. And that's how God outbuilt David. Every time you offer a gift to God, God will outbuild you. He will take what you give him and he will turn it into a miracle for his kingdom. But he wants us to give whatever we have to him. And as before, the people received the food and they were satisfied. They had to imagine something special was happening. No catering company came. They looked around. Not everyone had bread. There was just a little. And again, the disciples gather up the leftovers. And there are some commentators that think there's a significance to the number of baskets that were gathered up. But I, I think the point is that the disciples gave Jesus inadequate resources and watched him provide in a way that the disciples could never do on their own, in a way that their minds were blown. The 12 didn't get it the first time. We know that. And if they missed the point on this day, they would eventually get it, get the lesson. And it's a lesson we all need to learn. And here's the lesson. The sheer volume of need that's out there can be overwhelming. And yet God says to each of us what he said at the first miracle in Mark 6, you give them something to eat. You do it. And so that's the lesson. In other words, and this is on your outline, Jesus says to each of us, I give you the responsibility to meet the needs you can with my help. I'm there to help you. You offer what you can, I will help you multiply it. I will outbuild you just like I outbuilt David. So God already knows the size of the task is beyond our ability for any one of us. The truth is that God doesn't need us or anyone else to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in the world. But God does call us to join him in ministry. Are you partnering with God in ministry? Are you doing that for him? I know it's the Holy Spirit that takes the words every time I preach and multiplies them into the needs that you have in your heart and emphasizes different things to different people. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. I know that. And and there's no way that I could stand up here and say anything of value without the Holy Spirit touching your heart. And yes, you have a responsibility in listening, but... Uh, but the, the Holy Spirit is ultimately the one who does the work. And, and you've got this on your outline. The fact that Jesus delegates responsibility to us is a gift of grace. Even that is a gift of grace. At the end of the day, 4,000 people are sent home with full bellies. And the disciples could legitimately say, by God's grace, we fed the multitude. And that's exactly the way Jesus wants it because we're partnering with him. The disciples were partnering with him. And then look at verse 11 in Mark 8. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. And they asked him for a sign from heaven. 
He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. So it looks like pretty much immediately after this miracle, the Pharisees want Jesus to prove his identity with a sign. As if they didn't already have one there and, and all the other miracles that Jesus has done. How many signs do they need? The Pharisees had the background, they had the intellect, they had the knowledge, and they should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah right away. But as we know from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. that They might not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Jesus' point in refusing to answer the Pharisees for a sign, it was like him saying, you know, if after all you've seen me do up to now, has not convinced you and given you the evidence that you need, that you've seen in my life and through my life, through the miracles I've already done and even raising someone from the dead, even me raising from the dead will not convince you. And it didn't. So how do we make sure we're not like the Pharisees? How can we be responsive to God in, in the most positive way? Well, there's a paradox here because it's God who ultimately gives us a new heart. But we have an essential part in the miracle that takes place of, of, having a, of making sure that we're in a position before God where he can transform us. That's what the disciplines are for. That's why we spend time in the word of God. That's why we pray. That's why we read the word. That's why we fellowship together. All these disciplines. The discipline of, of, of being the church together because all of these things put us in a place before God where, where he can do this transforming work. We place ourselves before God. He transforms us. He gets the glory. He does the work. We partner with him. Uh, somebody I was talking to recently shared how they came to faith and they said, you know, I got to say I hated God and I was just concerned about myself. And then when, when God got a hold of my heart, when he met me head on, all of a sudden I had a love for God and I wasn't just concerned about me, I was concerned about other people. And that's what, what, what God does in our lives. Maybe when we see this most clearly in the New Testament is where Peter writes, where we, we partner along with God, where we have our responsibilities in 1 Peter 3.8. All of you have a tender heart and a humble mind. That's a commandment. We are to have, you're to have, we're to have a tender heart and a humble mind. Or where Paul commands us in Ephesians 4, and he says, be kind to one another, you be tender hearted. It's not just God who makes us tenderhearted. We make ourselves tenderhearted by continually placing ourselves before God. God gives us a new heart and then he commands us to participate with him in that heart growing and, and to, to be a responsive heart and a sensitive heart to God. He helps us by giving us his word to direct us and his, and his Holy Spirit. But so it's our responsibility to hear the word and then to do it, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So faith is this, is, that's tender, faith that depends on God is the opposite of what the Pharisees' rebellious spirit was like. Paul writes this in Philippians 2, work hard to show the results of your salvation, 
obeying God with deep reverence and fear. So that's our responsibility to work hard to show the results of your salvation. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what he pleases. Even if the Pharisees had gotten a sign from heaven, they, they still wouldn't believe. They were stubborn. They were rebellious before God. And that's not where we want to be. That's what Jesus was warning the disciples against. And Jesus stops dialoguing with the Pharisees. He leaves to go to the other side of the lake. He made it clear in verse 12 he wasn't going to perform miracles on demand. And there are times when more discussion sometimes is useless. We just have to leave people in their rebellion and pray that God will work. Uh, and boy, his rapid departure, I think, was a signal of his judgment against the Pharisees. And then the, the second thing we see, and this is in verses 14 to 21, is Jesus warns the disciples about these Pharisees and their attitudes, and he continues that. So let's look at verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And so... <clears throat> Um, on your outline I think you've got this Jesus warns them about the subtle but corrupting influence of the Pharisees and their political opposites the Herodians and what the Pharisees and the Herodians had in common is that they both hated Jesus so during his object lesson about the leaven I think one of the disciples thought leaven wait you need leaven for bread bread Who's got the bread? Wait. What? You have one loaf of bread? The, the irony of that, when they've picked up all of these loaves of bread, that they only have one loaf of bread, I, think, I thought was kind of funny. But in their hurry to get away, they don't have but one loaf of bread. And Jesus uses it again as a teaching opportunity. Look at verse 15. The, you know, yeast is generally used in the Bible in a negative way. So... When, when used in cooking, a small amount is all that's needed and it permeates the dough. It goes throughout the dough. You never can remove it once it's in the dough. And Jesus is warning the disciples here not to adopt these negative attitudes of the Pharisees. To, to not be willfully rebellious uh, like, like they were. And, and without this warning from Jesus, the disciples, I think, could have naturally looked up to the Pharisees. Because they were holy, they were, uh, they were spiritual. They could have looked to them as, as role models. But Jesus was saying, don't do that. They're rebellious in their hearts. And like that leaven, that attitude spreads to every part of our lives. Another thing Jesus seems to want to communicate to the disciples here is to not accept the prejudiced attitudes of the disciples, uh, of the Pharisees. And they consider themselves above everyone else. They were more holy than anyone else. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. That's the attitude that we're to have. We, we counter this wrong thinking of the Pharisees by focusing on Jesus. Have this same attitude in you, which was in Christ. What was his attitude? He was not selfish. He didn't try to impress others. He was humble. 
He thought of others as better than himself. He didn't look out for his own interests, but took an interest in others. Uh, Cheryl Batchelder is the CEO of Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Ever had one of their sandwiches? I don't know. I've heard it's the best. So, um, She turned around her company with a focus on serving others. And she wrote a book actually called Dare to Serve. And in that book, she says that this passage I just read in Philippians 2 is a verse that she says, I filter through what I determine on how I spend my time and the decisions I make. Am I thinking about myself or am I thinking of others? And then she writes, I don't think one can ever fully arrive at being a true servant leader, but it's something I'm always working toward. We're all on a journey. We want to be successful. It was like a, a man in, in our the church that we were involved in and members of back in Wheaton uh, ages ago, uh, a guy named Ken Hansen, who started a company called Service Master. And he was very simply wanted to go in service for the master. It's a cleaning company. Maybe you've seen their trucks around San Diego. They're here. Uh, but that's why he named it Service Master. And on the way in, it's a public company now, but on the way into the headquarters is a, a statue of Jesus, uh, of a businessman sitting on a bench and Jesus washing that businessman's feet. Uh, one of the shareholders uh, came to Ken Hansen and said he was offended by that statue. And Ken said, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, we're not going to be moving it because that's why we founded our company. That's, that's who we founded our company after. That's the master that we serve. Um, and so it, it's, it's not just, it, that, that makes an impact wherever we are in whatever sphere of life we're in, th- that we think about others. So how do we correct that wrong thinking? How do we counter it of the Pharisees? Well, it's like what Peter says in 2 Peter 3. He says, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The verb to grow there uh, is to continue growing. It's something that continues. You keep on growing. You keep on understanding God's grace and living by his grace alone. So look at verse 16 in Mark 8. They discussed this with one another and said it's, it's because we have no bread. So as soon as Jesus mentioned the leaven, the disciples assume he's blaming them for not bringing along bread. And then verse 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are, you taking, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? So it's the same lesson again. And the Greek word translated see and understand, both of them basically mean to observe with, with deep reflection. So Jesus is saying, think about it. You could paraphrase Jesus' question in verse 17 with, with, don't you guys get it? Come on. Can't you connect the dots? The clues make the conclusion self-evident. How can you not see this? I will provide for you. That's what Jesus is saying to him. Logic itself demanded the disciples remember how Jesus had already cared for their needs and the needs of many others, and he would do it again. And it was true, they just had one loaf of bread between them. But the man who was responsible for those two earlier miracles is sitting in the boat with them. So Jesus wants them to learn again 
that he'll provide. You know, for Jesus, the, the, the physical bread wasn't just the issue. He asks the disciples this, this series of questions, nine questions from verses 17 to 21. You've got them listed on the outline. Why are you discussing that you do not have any bread? Uh, don't you understand or comprehend? Sadly, no. Is your heart hardened? Sadly, yes. Do you have eyes and not see? I guess so. Do you have ears and not hear? Mm, yeah. Do you not remember? Apparently not. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces of bread did you collect? Um, 12. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many large basketfuls of pieces of bread did you collect? Um, seven. Don't you understand yet? I, I, I think they're starting to get it. But it's a journey. It doesn't happen all at once. All of us need to learn lessons a second time and a third time. When Jesus asked them if their hearts were hard in verse 17, he wasn't implying hard like the Pharisees that were willfully rebellious, but they were slow to understand. So are we. So Jesus' lesson is this. How could they worry about not having enough when they'd witnessed these miraculous events over and over? And if Jesus can feed 9,000 people in these two miraculous events, and this is on your outline, surely he can supply my needs. He can, he can do that for us. So yes, it's important to be as clear as we can when we speak, but that's still no guarantee. The Pharisees heard Jesus, but they didn't want to listen. The disciples heard Jesus and they did want to listen. That's the difference. And so this is on your outline. If Jesus can feed over 9,000 people, surely he can supply our needs. He'll do it for us. The disciples weren't stupid. They struggled to overcome some of the challenges we have today. And one of those is to be aware of the dulling influence, and this is on your outline, of wrong narratives. It's like being in a rut. We follow the same thing over and over again, even though we know it's going to lead to bad consequences. And that's maybe because that's the way we lived our life before coming to faith in Jesus. And maybe it's because we get into these wrong ways of thinking in our head from our families. Maybe our family has given us a wrong narrative to live by. Maybe it's our culture. Our culture says, invest in money and make your life all about having enough money and, and having enough things, getting just more things and more and more things. Our, our culture says, make it all the way to the top and, and exercise your power over others, have power over others. That's what it's all about. And Jesus comes and turns all of that upside down. He says, no, that's not the way I want you to live. I want you to live for me. I want you to live for others. I want you to seek first my kingdom. And so listening to wrong narratives can be a danger for us. And this is on your outline. The goal is to replace the wrong narratives in our minds with Jesus' narratives. 
What does Jesus say about this? What does the Bible say about this? That's why we have to study the Bible. That's why we have to live it out in our lives. So seeing miracles, the other thing that Jesus did not want the disciples to do, and this is on your outline, is to see Jesus' miracles as commonplace. Think of all they'd seen Jesus do. Give sight to the blind. Give, give hearing to the deaf. I feel like I've had my sight restored this week. I had cataract surgery in my right eye, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, technicolor. This is amazing. Pretty cool. Uh, but they saw Jesus cast out demons and change the weather, raise the dead. So we have, we have to always be on the guard of thinking that what we see God do is commonplace. Because we can be around spiritual things, we can be around spiritual teaching, we can be in Bible studies, we can hear sermons so long and so often that the revolutionary message of the gospel gets lost. We forget about it. I love the way one author, uh, Paul Tripp, said, said it this way. He said, your spiritual life is all about inner motivations. It's all about kingdoms. It's all about warfare. It's way bigger than the surface Christianity to which it is often reduced. You could read your Bible every day and the entire Bible each year and still love have love just for yourself. You could be faithful in your attendance, all of the church's scheduled gatherings, and live just for your little kingdom. You could regularly place your hard-earned money in the plate and still not live with God's kingdom in view. You could be an expert in theology and still shrink your life down to what you want and tell, tell yourself that it's all about what you need. You could participate in ministries to the poor and needy and still not live for the big kingdom. You could do all these things and the trajectory of your life could still be more toward the kingdom of self than the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is warning the disciples against. And like the disciples, and this is on your outline, we can't forget that the mission and the vision of Christ is for us to live out. It applies to us. Jesus wanted to make sure the disciples knew that what appeared to be holiness in the Pharisees was not the result of their deep devotion to God. It was not the work of the kingdom that caused them to live the way they did. No, they did these things in the absence of their devotion. That's what the Pharisees did. It's because they didn't have the devotion to God that they were doing all these outward things. They didn't do them for God and his kingdom at all. They did them for the kingdom of self. And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't let that leaven get into your life and start living for yourself. True Christianity is always a matter of the submission of the heart to God. So is your heart submitted to God? This morning, right now, is your heart submitted to him? Are you seeking first his kingdom in your life? What needs to change in your life so that you do seek first his kingdom? Is it about living for yourself or is it about living for Jesus? Is your focus on, on yourself? Is it on the other people around you? Because when he changes our lives, it will be about loving him and loving others. Think about it. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, may our lives be all about your grace and living for you today. Help us, Father, to have a kingdom mindset. Help us to see that because of our sin that spreads everywhere like leaven, that we're infected with a spirit that says, your life for mine, but the son came to give his life for us. And so we thank you for Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to see that as the ultimate sign of your love, you let that completely destroy our pride and our fear and our anxiety. And we ask, Lord, that we would be faithful to participate with you in making our life all about Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now may God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole. Put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our master Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy your day and have some great fellowship together.